If you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. That's where we'll be, breaking, in, breaking ground in a brand new chapter in our study throughout Hebrews. If you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we're in this book for all this year. It's going to take us probably up through around Thanksgiving break. So we're taking it slow. We're looking deep and long at the, at the, the, the many different sections and ideas that are presented to us here. Uh, and one thing we've noted so far in our study is that the author, when he's writing his letter, one of the, one of the techniques that he uses is that he, he has two lines of thought he's trying to develop. One is him explaining things, mostly about Jesus and what makes Jesus great. A lot of the book is given to that. But then every now and then he changes pace, almost just on a dime, and starts encouraging the, his readers to actually do something with this information. You might say it's the difference between explanation and exhortation or encouragement, or maybe a better way to think of it is he's like a preacher who's got these points that he wants to make, and then after each of the points, he applies them. He says, do this with the information that I've given you. Today, we get to another one of those do this sections. This is the author to the Hebrews getting practical. Begins with chapter 3, and it's going to carry us on through the next couple chapters. So let's, if you found the text, let's go ahead and read the first six verses of chapter 3. The author applying everything we've already looked at in chapter 2. If you found that, would you stand with me, please, in honor of God's word? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So what you may have noticed about this passage, reading through it, is how often the word faithfulness comes up. It makes sense, right? Because this is the section, as I've already mentioned, where the author is trying to, to apply all the heavy lifting, the intellectual heavy lifting he's already done in the first couple chapters. He's saying, now, do this with this information about Jesus that I've explained to you. And, it's, and, and as you've seen, it's all about the faithfulness of Jesus. It ties the passage together. At the very beginning of, of verse 2, where he's sort of introducing Jesus as his subject, he refers to Jesus' faithfulness to the one who appointed him. And then in, in, chapter, in verse 6... He talks about Jesus' faithfulness over the house as a son. That's what ties it together. They're bookends. We're talking about Jesus' faithfulness. And we know that this text is primarily a call for us to do something with it. It's, it's a call to consider Jesus, to hold fast to your confidence, to, to hold on to your boasting and your hope. It's a call to do something with the fact that Jesus was faithful. And here's what I want you to... Don't miss this. This is the whole point today. There's a question we've got to answer. What is the connection between Jesus' faithfulness, that's been the subject of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and most of this paragraph we're looking at today, and our faithfulness? What's the connection between Jesus' faithfulness on the one hand and our faithfulness on the other hand? Everything rides on the answer to that question. 
wanted to look at both of those in, d- in detail today. We'll go really deep on what this passage says about how Jesus was faithful, and then also look at, at what it says, how it points us to how we will be faithful because of Jesus' faithfulness. Now, on, on, on Jesus' faithfulness, I'm guessing the first thing that you thought of, when you, if, if you're paying close attention as you read through this paragraph, you probably think of the same thing that I do. He's, he's presenting Jesus to us as a, a role model, right? Jesus was faithful. Moses was faithful. You should be faithful. And that's an instinctive way for us to read this passage because we all love role models. We need them. Like we all have them in your, in your own field. You know, I've got, every stage of my life, it seems like, from, from when I was a baseball player, I had role models. When I was in, it didn't last long, people. I mean, you know that. It was 12 years old, maybe. But by the time I realized I was never going to be Dale Murphy, I was a 1980s Braves player, if you didn't know who that is. And it switched to you know, role models as, a, as, a, as an academic, role models as a pastor. You know, we, we all have them. But we all know that as useful as they can be, they're also really dangerous in one way, right? Because I'm guessing we all know what it's like to fail, to meet up to the standard that's set by your role model. So, for example, imagine you're the poor 16-year-old kid whose dad wants him to be Tim Tebow. You should imagine it. You're 16 years old, and your dad plays your game tape of Tebow and says, that's going to be you, right? You're going to be a dual-threat QB. You're going to set records for touchdowns, rushing, and passing. You're going to win a Heisman Trophy. You're going to win national titles. You're going to spend your summers doing circumcisions in the Philippines for underprivileged children. You're going to be a first-round draft pick as a quarterback, even though people thought you wouldn't make a second-string fullback. Then, even though you don't have NFL talent, you're going to keep winning in the NFL by grit and determination. And on top of it all, even though you could be an international sex symbol, you're going to save yourself from marriage. That's who you're going to be. You're going to be Tim Tebow. And I know, now, no doubt, Tim, Tim Tebow could be a great model. You know, that's not, that's not uh, up for discussion right now. There's lots of things I'm sure kids could, could learn from him. But, but here's, the, here's the real point. What happens when that kid doesn't win his Heisman, right? What happens when that kid doesn't win his Heisman? If Jesus is a role model for us, in the same way that Tim Tebow is a role model for this kid, what happens when we don't achieve what Jesus did? What good is his faithfulness for us then? I mean, ultimately, Tim Tebow's Heisman is not transferable. If that kid doesn't, fails to win it, Tebow's doing him no good. No more good than Ronald Reagan could transfer his eloquence to George W. Bush or Jonathan Edwards could transfer his preaching ability to me. Their faithfulness as role models is not transferable. And if Jesus' faithfulness is no more to us than a Tim Tebow-style role model, who we should be, then when we fail, as we will, to attain the perfection that Jesus attained, what are we going to do? Unfortunately, that is not the kind of faithfulness that's presented to us in this passage. Jesus' faithfulness is given to us here in Hebrews 3, not primarily as something we should seek to follow after. That can be true in a way, and other passages make that point. It's, it's given to us here primarily as an encouragement, a faithfulness not as a duty that we're to perform, but as a gift accomplished for us that now we're just to receive. Jesus' faithfulness is transferable in the way that other role models' attributes are not. Jesus was faithful for us. That's the point. Now, I want to get into the details here so you can see where this is coming from. Really, the text explains the faithfulness of Jesus in a couple of ways. We want to understand, what, according to this author, how was Jesus faithful? How was he faithful? 
two different ways that it points it to us, us to it. Both of the references to his faithfulness I mentioned before in verse 2 and then in verse 6 point us in the right direction. So in verse 2, here's what verse 2 says. Well, back, backing up in verse 1 to get the, the whole picture. Consider Jesus. That's the command. That's what we're to do. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. He was faithful to him who appointed him. The question that we got to ask is, okay, if we want to understand what, why Jesus or how Jesus was faithful, what was he faithful in doing? And the clue is that he was faithful to him who appointed him. So then we ask, well, what did he appoint him to do? Because that must have been where, where he was faithful. And I think that the titles that are given to him in verse 1 are our answer. He was appointed by God and then faithful to his appointment to the office of apostle and high priest. Apostle and high priest. So that's number one. I'm lumping those all together. Jesus' faithfulness is presented to us. How was he faithful? He was faithful as apostle and high priest. He fulfilled those offices in the way that he was meant to fulfill them. Let's consider this. Apostle. What, what, might, what might that be getting at? Normally we associate the apostles with followers of Jesus, like his, his main guys that he poured into, his disciples, who, who after he left were responsible to found the church. And then, and then teach them the things that Jesus had taught to his disciples. And they had the kind of authority to do that. They were distinct office. That, that isn't how the word's being used here, I don't think. Ultimately, this author is just using it in the way that a dictionary would have reported its meaning. It just meant sent one. He didn't have all the, this author didn't have all those associations with the word that we have today. It just means sent one. So what he's referring to, I think, is that Jesus was one who was sent from God being the Son of God, creator of all things that are existing eternally, he was sent from that place into our world. It's the message of chapter 2 that we've looked at for the last two weeks. Jesus, even though he was highly exhausted, ex- exalted, became lower than the angels for a little while. Remember that passage, chapter 2? He became one of us. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Do you remember that? So that he could die for us, take on our enemy for us, and wipe clean the record of sin against us. Jesus had to be sent, and he was faithful in that. And then he serves faithfully in the office of high priest. So if the apostle is a reference to Jesus coming down to us, the high priest is a reference of Jesus' ability to take us to God. Because ultimately what keeps us from a, 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 a peaceful and harmonious relationship with God is the fact that we aren't fit to enter his presence. We're not holy. The high priest in the Old Testament was the one who was responsible to conduct the people of Israel through all the rituals they had to go through so that they could be fit to enter into God's presence. He had to make them clean. Jesus as high priest, the one who was with God, was made for a time lower than the angels. Now, because his sacrifice for us is himself, and it's so perfect, and so completely wipes clean all record of sin against us, now he gets to represent us to God as a perfect high priest whose sacrifice never has to be repeated. You see how these offices are working? How was Jesus faithful? He was faithful to the one who appointed him, and what he was appointed to do was to come to us because we needed help from outside of ourselves, and then to take us to God as a priest who perfectly handled the problem of our sin. Now, is that a kind of faithfulness that we can follow as a model? Ultimately, is God calling us to be an apostle in the same sense Jesus was? Obviously not. Can we be a high priest in the same way Jesus was? Can, can any sacrifice that we make help anybody else out? No. The point of Jesus' faithfulness is what it accomplishes for us 
not what it calls for from us. Jesus was faithful to the office that God gave him. That's the first part of his faithfulness in in this paragraph. There's another. Skipping down to to verse 6, that's where the author brings to a head his comparison of Jesus and Moses. Now, by this point in our study in Hebrews, we're used to seeing this author compare Jesus to things. In the, the very first paragraph of the whole letter, he starts comparing him to the ways that God used to speak, like through, through uh, the prophets, for example, and the law. Then we saw him compare Jesus to the angels, these revered spiritual beings who, who meant so much to the people he was writing to. And he, he showed how Jesus was better than the angels, was, was higher than them in the, in the hierarchy of beings. And now he takes on what was perhaps the most revered figure of all for the people that he was writing to, Moses himself. Because Moses, Moses for them represented the ultimate communication of God to them, the law, the thing that set them apart as a people, what let them know what it would mean to live in a way that pleased God, to reflect God's holiness, to be perfect as God was perfect. Moses was their hero. He was, in fact, their ultimate role model. And now this author is saying Jesus is better. He says that he has greater glory, just as much greater glory than the builder of a house has of the house itself. Why? What makes Jesus better than Moses? Now, if if this author was trying to present Jesus to us as some sort of role model that we're supposed to follow, some sort of standard that we need to fulfill, then what we would expect is for him to compare Jesus to Moses, somebody that they really looked up to as a role model, and say, Jesus was more perfect, more obedient, more faithful than Moses. So stop using Moses as your role model and look to Jesus as your role model. Be faithful perfectly like he was. But that isn't what he does in this comparison to Moses. In fact, he doesn't say anything bad about Moses at all. What you would almost think that he would do is point to all the times that Moses failed. You know, those are in the story. Moses, for example, didn't, he, he, did, he doubted God's ability to speak through him. He said, I, you know, I don't have good, good words. Give me someone else who can speak. And so God appoints his brother Aaron to speak for him. Or then when he's leading the children of Israel through the wilderness towards the promised land, he gets in trouble for striking the rock in a way other than God indicated he should to, to provide water to the people of Israel. And he doesn't, even, he doesn't even get to go into the promised land. Moses was a flawed guy. If the point was Jesus is better than Moses because he's more faithful and you should be more faithful like Jesus, then you'd expect that to be the way he's comparing him, wouldn't you? Moses failed. Jesus didn't. Be like Jesus. But what he does is actually celebrate Moses. He talks about Moses being faithful in God's house in the way that he was appointed. The difference is not between two different levels or two two different um, track records. The difference is between two different roles. Jesus' faithfulness matters because of what he was faithful to do for us. Not because of how faithful he was primarily, but because of what he was faithful to do for us. And here's the difference. Verse 5 and 6 explain it for us. Moses was perfectly faithful. For, this, for the purposes of this author, Moses was a faithful man. But he was faithful in God's house as a servant. Where Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. Do you see that? Verses 5 and 6. Jesus' faithfulness has to do with the fact that he was faithful as a son. What does that mean? How does this comparison with Moses as a servant help us? Moses is celebrated here. There's nothing wrong with him. He's just limited. 
what he was meant to do was to serve as sort of a steward in God's house, pointing ahead to something, verse 5 says, to be said later. He's pointing ahead to something that's coming later. Jesus is not a servant, not someone pointing ahead to something coming later, not someone who exists to elevate the status of something else. Jesus is the point. Jesus is what was said later. He is the whole significance on which the house of God rests. That's the point of this comparison. To be over the house, to be the son in the house, means that he cares for it, means that he owns it, that he identifies himself with it, that he stands or falls with that house, that he treasures it as his possession in the way that we treasure the things that matter most to us. That's what it means for Jesus to be a son. Actually, I think that this, this show that's kind of uh, sweeping across the nation right now helps us on this. Anybody watching Downton Abbey? Maybe sweeping is a strong word. Not many of you are watching it. <laughs> Downton Abbey, I, I mean, it, I was hearing about it a long time before I saw it. My wife loves it. And true confession, I have actually watched the last three episodes in their entirety. It's this, uh, it, I'll admit, the last couple in particular have been a little soap opera-ish for my tastes. But in general, it's, a, it's actually a really good show. And what it, I think the biggest payoff of it is that it helps us to understand the difference. That it helps us to see the class system that was so prominent in England 50 years ago. Or actually, I guess it's probably more like 70 years ago. Anyway, what it does is gives us an inside look at how this house functions. And it follows the life of the servants and compares that to the life of the ones who own the house, primarily the heir, the son who's over it all. The servants, of course, are faithful. They seem to, for the most part, enjoy their, their status. It's not, they don't see them complaining or kicking up a fuss. This is not a, an extreme example of exploitation. But they, own, they, they, they live in the house. They eat there. It's where their possessions are. It's where their lives are. But they don't. There's a clearly a different relationship between them and the house than, than between the, the, the heir over all things and his family. That guy, the heir, who's this, this son of an older woman who's, the, who's sort of the matriarch over the family, he's the one who bears the responsibility for whether or not the house is solvent, for whether or not it survives the, the First World War, for whether or not his daughters marry off into to acceptably high-statused individuals. He's the one who owns this house and treasures it and ultimately stands to gain from it. That, that analogy probably would have worked a lot better if you guys had watched the show. <laughs> Point being, if the author was trying to call us to be faithful like Jesus was, and the difference between Jesus' faithfulness and Moses is that Jesus was faithful as a son and Moses was faithful as a servant, why emphasize this? If the author just wanted us to follow in Jesus' footsteps, why emphasize his status as son? If he was faithful as a son, he was faithful in a role that's never given to us. We're not supposed to be the son of God. We're never going to be the heir. We are his house, verse 6 says, and he is the son over us. Why emphasize that? Because he wants to encourage his readers with the fact that they, as the house of the son who is faithful, are perfectly secure. They are his treasure. 
He has so identified himself with them that they could just as soon fall as him. He could no sooner fall himself than allow his house to fall. His house is who he is. Jesus' faithfulness becomes a reason to rejoice, to be encouraged, and then to be faithful, not to a role model primarily, but to the one who was faithful for us as a gift that we receive and not some sort of duty that we perform. The implication here is huge. Please don't miss this. What I hope is clear now about this picture that we're given here of Jesus' faithfulness is that it is primarily a picture of things that Jesus has done for us, not things that we are supposed to do for him. Of course, Jesus is a role model for his followers. We are to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him. Of course that's true. But if we start there, we're in big trouble. If Jesus' primary significance for us is that he shows us what we should be, then we are in big trouble because we aren't that. Ultimately, Jesus is a lot more attractive as a role model than he is as a faithful son over his house. We have to work so hard here, I think, not to let ourselves slip into just latching on to Jesus for the role model that he provides. It's so common. I think it's as common now as it's ever been. People even outside of Christianity love Jesus as a role model. I've been reading this, uh, this Steve Jobs biography, for example. I don't know if you knew this about Steve Jobs, but he's a very religious person in, in, in one sense. He loved Eastern religion. He loved uh, Zen Buddhism and some of the teachings and philosophies of Hinduism as a way to get to enlightenment and simplicity and all the stuff that you see incarnated in the iPod, basically. He got that from Eastern religion. Jobs had a respect for Jesus, but this is what he said about Christianity. The juice goes out of Christianity, says Jobs, when it becomes too based on faith rather than on living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it. He continues, I think different religions are different doors to the same house. That's a pretty common perspective, right? Jobs is representing something that a lot of people think. And and the way that you can say that that all the religions are really doors to the same house is by reducing religions to their moral teachings, to examples or role models that we should aspire to. So Jesus gets set up alongside Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or you know fill in the blank, whoever that you respect and, and want to be like, Jesus goes right there with them. That's not a Jesus who's distinct. It's not a Jesus who's necessary in the same way that the author of Hebrews is trying to present him to us. No, far from that, what he's trying to convince us of is that Jesus had to do something for us that couldn't be done by us or by anyone else. The reason he is the only way to peace with God, the only faithful apostle and high priest, is that Jesus does something for us. He was faithful for us, not as a role model, but as a gift. That's what makes him distinct. So friends, please don't settle for a Jesus that any Hindu could claim. I think we're so prone to this trap. Even as, even as longtime believers who are used to hearing the gospel message of Jesus' death for us, I think we, we can so easily slip into primarily thinking of Jesus as a model, into doing things that we think help us to look like Jesus and fixating on them as separated from the faithfulness of Jesus for us. And we want to live like Jesus did. 
We want that, but the order here is everything. Jesus' faithfulness is first a gift to us, and only then is it something we aspire to. Don't miss this order. I mean, you can even focus, just as an example of how easy this is, you can even focus on evangelism. You can give your whole life to telling other people about Jesus and neglect Jesus himself in your own heart. You can get to the point where sharing Jesus is more important to you than knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. You can do the same thing with mercy ministry, right? We have a lot of our people who are active in extending the kind of care that Jesus, in, in, in his death for us, extended to us, to those who have needs. And it's a beautiful thing. It is very much a role model that's provided to us in Christ. That is a biblical way to look at it. But if you start there, or if, even if you just allow yourself to come, become fixated there, to where how you think about yourself in Christ is through the things that you do to look like him to those who have needs, then you are in danger of not just putting the cart before the horse, but of missing the horse altogether. Consider Jesus. That's the, that's the call of this passage. Consider Jesus and what he did for you. Because apart from Jesus' faithfulness, there's no Christianity. And there's no salvation. That's Jesus' faithfulness. It's a faithfulness for us. So, what does our faithfulness look like? Because obviously, this author didn't present this picture of Jesus because it's interesting. He presented it because he wants something from his readers. Remember what I said at the beginning. This is one of those paragraphs where he's switching from just talking about Jesus to trying to call for something from us. He wants us to take action. So what is it that he wants from us? What does faithfulness look like for people who have received the gift of Jesus' faithfulness from us? What is the connection, our question that we started with, between Jesus' faithfulness and our faithfulness as his followers? Verse 6, I think, draws a picture for us. Verse 6 says this, the, the, the conclusion of it. We are his house, the house that Christ is faithful over as a son. We are his house, his people, his possession, his inheritance. If indeed... So here comes some actions. Here comes a, a, a qualifier. If we hold fast our confidence and hold fast our boasting in our hope. If we hold fast our confidence and if we hold fast our boasting in our hope. I want to drill down on each of those two things. I think that is a window into where our faithfulness to the one who is faithful for us has to begin. Hold fast our confidence. Now, Here's where we got to be really, really careful. And I'm guessing you did the same thing I did. When you, when you read that phrase, hold fast our confidence, what you think of when you think of confidence is an attitude that you have, like a subjective inside of yourself attitude. I am a confident person. I am confident about my ability to do X, Y, or Z. It's, it's an attitude. Everybody thinking that? Yes? No? I don't know what else you guys thought about with confidence, but that, that's what I thought of. That's not exactly where this word is going. This word is, is, is pretty different. Originally, even before this author used it, it was a, a word that was kicked around for a kind of possession that citizens of Greece held. It was their right to speak openly, to speak boldly, without fear, a sort of freedom of speech in the public square. 
It was a possession. It was the confidence that they had. Not that I'm not afraid I'm not gonna be, I'm, that I'm going to be uh, tortured for what I'm saying. That, that, not that. It was the right to speak, the right itself. Confidence was a possession, a right that you had. Now, it's a little different here, I think, in the way that the author is using it, but it's similar. It's less something that's inside us than something we possess, something that's given to us, something that's closer to a right or a privilege than an attitude. I think the confidence that we're supposed to hold fast to is what Jesus promises us as our high priest, that we now have access, fearless access through him into God's presence. And in other words, we're clean, we're holy, we're forgiven because of him. Confidence isn't something we have to muster. Confidence is something that's given to us in Christ. So faithfulness for us is not the muster-up confidence. Faithfulness in us is hold fast to that confidence. Hold fast to that confidence. This is a huge difference. Faithfulness for us is not what we muster. It's what we hold on to. It's, holding, it's the holding on to of the thing that's given to us in Jesus. It's, it's faith in Jesus and what he's done. It's a, it's a commitment Holding fast to this confidence is a commitment of all of our lives to this thing being true. To Jesus' promises to us being trustworthy. That's what it is to hold fast to his confidence. Now, if you have ever struggled with doubt, you know why this distinction matters so much. If you're a doubter, and when you read that to be faithful to Jesus, to be part of his house, you've got to have confidence, then that could have been a crushing load to you. I know that it has been to me at different times in my past. Ultimately, it doesn't mean that. It's a call to us to hold on with whatever strength we have to something that's accomplished for us, not something we have to muster in our own power. So I'd ask you, if, if this is what confidence is, if faithfulness looks like holding on to something given to you by Jesus, and if you're on that fence between claiming Jesus as your life and your only hope and waiting for more evidence for him to prove himself to you. Let me just ask you, what's holding you back? If you think it's that you can't muster enough confidence, then you've got no reason to wait. Your confidence isn't the issue. Maybe you think of yourself as more like a scientist who's waiting to get enough data before he publishes, right? I can't publish. I can't claim. Go ahead and put on paper my commitment to Christ until I have enough certainty about it through my experiments. Jesus isn't a math problem or a science experiment. He's a person who calls you into relationship. And at some point, there is, in, in some way, there's no way to remove all ambiguity from relationships. You just have to commit to them and, and, and work out that ambiguity inside of them. So here's what I'd want you to think of yourself as. Not, if, if you're on that fence, you can't get off of it. You're waiting to commit to Jesus because you're, you just haven't found that silver bullet yet. You're not the guy who's waiting for more science data to come in before you publish in your peer-reviewed journal. You're the guy who's waiting to propose to his girlfriend for years and years because you just can't be mathematically certain that she's the one. That, that kind of certainty doesn't come in relationships. So please, just get, get off the fence. Claim Jesus. There's enough reason to do it. His confidence will hold you fast, even if your hold on him is weak. 
proclaim him, and then in the context of that living and breathing relationship with him, work out your doubts that may not go away. That's the kind of confidence we're called to, a confidence that's his, that we hold on to. And maybe, maybe you're not that kind of doubter. Maybe you're more doubting from within the Christian community. You, you, you know you own Jesus, but you're worried that maybe your faith isn't enough. I've certainly been there too. You struggle to know whether you've got, you, you have no assurance that Jesus is yours and that you're his possession, that you are his inheritance and part of his house. And maybe you read this verse and you think, I don't have that kind of confidence. Please don't miss the point of that word. It's not calling you to a kind of rigid certainty about where you stand with Jesus. The confidence is something Jesus provides to you as a gift. What is called for from you, what faithfulness looks like in you, is a holding on to it. And here's the real beauty of the gospel. Faithfulness for you is holding on with as much as you've got. But what matters far more than the strength of your hold on Jesus is the strength of the object that you're holding on to. I've heard this analogy several places. I can't remember exactly where it came from originally, but it's, it's the difference between the strength of your hold on a branch and the strength of that branch. I think the kind of faithfulness this passage calls us to is one to realize it, calling us to realize that the branch itself is confidence, and it is Jesus, and the access that he provides to God. It is the perfect forgiveness of all of our sins that's offered through him. That's the branch, and it's a strong one. It's, it's, like, it's like one of those trees that really is three trees in one. I mean, it is that, that branches out with a, a trunk the size of a normal tree. It's one of those trees. It is, it is a branch that will not break. Your hold on it might be weak, but that's not ultimately where you stand or fall. You stand or fall whether or not, on the basis of whether or not that branch can hold you, and it can That's why the author starts with the faithfulness of Jesus. He's trying to describe him as a branch that will not break. The flip side of that is that you can have all the confidence in the world. You can be one of those that Jesus refers to as those who call out to him, Lord, Lord, but do not know him. You can have all the confidence, all the tight grip of the most certain of all people, but if the branch you're holding on to is less than Christ... It's rotten, and it's not going to hold you. It's going to break. Faithfulness is not about mustering certainty. It is about holding on with whatever it is you've got to the object that is our confidence in Christ. Finally, we've got to look at this concept of boasting. This is the last piece of the puzzle. We've looked at Jesus' faithfulness as a faithfulness for us, faithful to the office of apostle and high priest, faithful as a son over a house that he loves and has identified with fully. We've seen how that faithfulness calls for from us, first and foremost, a faithfulness to hold on to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Not to be like him, first and foremost, but to hold on to him. The last piece, the last dimension to our faithfulness is holding on to our boasting in hope, our boasting in hope. This is another one of those words that has associations that might not be helpful to us. Like a lot of times, or most naturally, when I think about boasting, I think about bragging. And, and a lot of times it is. I mean, there's, there's some overlap there. It's something you brag about. It's somebody who's always talking about themselves. And I think if we, if we take that word down a little bit, maybe a couple notches closer to its foundation, then boasting is really just about identity. Boasting is about identity. 
It's about who you are, what makes you who you are, and about expressing that to other people. Boasting is not necessarily bragging. It's reputation. It's what you're known for and wanting to be known for something. So Paul, or excuse me, the author to the Hebrews is calling us to boast in hope, the hope that's ours in Christ, the hope of what his faithfulness accomplished. So what does that mean? For example, I am unlikely ever again to boast about how much weight I can bench press. Probably never going to happen the rest of my life. None of you are surprised by that. What might surprise you is that I actually did used to lift weights at one point in high school. I mean, I wasn't on the juice or anything, but I, I, was, I enjoyed it. I lifted some, and I guess it probably had some part of my identity, sad as that may be. When I went to college, I completely stopped lifting. Pretty much have stopped ever since then, to be honest. <laughs> because I found something else that mattered more to who I was. In college, I wanted to be known as an intelligent person. I wanted good grades. I wanted to work harder than anybody else and to have them see me work hard. To have them know me as someone who was a cut above. Now, I didn't brag about it. That wasn't my style. Maybe I'd find some backdoor brags, you know, but mostly I just tried to find ways that other people would notice it and then, and then I would be known for it. I definitely wanted people to know, but then sort of find it out on their own. I wasn't necessarily bragging, but I was certainly boastful about my grades and intelligence. That's who I was, right? That's how I wanted to be known. In comparison to my new identity, the old boast fell away. It just became irrelevant. I didn't care anymore. I think this example helps us to see what sin looks like in us and what it would look like to be faithful in the terms of verse 6 and to boast in hope. I think you can see the Christian life, the progress of the gospel in us, is nothing more than a search and destroy mission against all boasts that compete with the supremacy of Jesus in our hearts. That's what repentance is, ultimately. Jesus came preaching the gospel and calling on people to repent. And repentance is turning away from some other thing that you identify yourself with to Jesus as your primary source of hope, as the primary reason that you mattered. So to continue with the example, you could see me stopping, no longer worrying about how much I could bench press and trading that in for caring about intellectual weightlifting, as a sort of repentance from caring about the the abilities of my body to caring about the abilities of my brain. It's a taking off of one jersey and a putting on of another one. That's not who I am. This is who I am. This is why I matter. The call to Christ is a call, the call to Christian faithfulness is a call to boast not in any other thing that might compete with supremacy, for supremacy with, with Jesus in our hearts but to boast only in the hope that's ours in him. It's getting to that place where you can say it doesn't matter whether people think of me as intelligent or physically fit or really, really sweet or a great parent or wealthy or stylish or tasteful decorator or athletic or whatever else. It doesn't matter whether I'm known for that because I am known as the one who belongs to the house of God, as the one who is owned by Jesus as the one who is his inheritance and his treasure, a treasure so valuable to him that he gave up his own life to buy it. 
to buy us and to make us holy. And in his house, we live forever. Now do you see the connection between Jesus' faithfulness for us and, and our faithfulness to him. It's not first and foremost one of role model to devotee. Jesus' faithfulness to us is providing everything that we need, and our faithfulness to him is holding fast to what he's done. What matters most is the strength of his work, of his faithfulness. That's why the author goes there first, because that's the branch that we're holding on to as hard as, as, as strongly, as firmly as we can. If he was faithful, then he can hold me even if my hold on him is weak. And our faithfulness looks like boasting only in the hope that's ours in him. By his faithfulness for us, and not in anything else that we could achieve on our own. And what you should be asking here is, how in the world do I get there? How do I get to the place where I boast in Jesus only? I have lots of other things that I want. And there's not a quick answer. I think that's one reason this author doesn't even give us one. What, is it, what does he tell us? He says this, consider Jesus. That simple. Consider Jesus. You want to hold fast to him? You want to boast only in the hope that's yours in him? You've got to consider him. And when, and when you consider him, when you read through Hebrews and listen to all the things that are told us, to us about Jesus there, and it seems abstract for you, it doesn't connect with you on the level of your felt needs, then read it some more and consider him more deeply and read it with prayer and pray to him that he'll make you more humble and able to receive what it is that he's telling you. Pray to him for eyes to see and a heart that loves what is told to us about Jesus. Ultimately, we never get beyond this simple call. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Father, help us. We are so distracted.